This is MSCI Perspectives, your source for insights for global investors and access to research and expertise from across the investment industry. I'm your host, Adam Bass, and today is December 9th, 2021. On today's program, we've spent a lot of time over the last few episodes looking at the COP26 climate conference, including our latest episode, where Oliver Marchand, MSCI's head of climate risk research, walked us through the implications for the world and for investors. Today, we'll hear another vital perspective, that of corporates, companies. After all, once you drill down from the grand pronouncements from conference attendees and governments, that's where a lot of the real work takes place. So what did COP26 mean for companies? To help answer this question, we have two COP veterans with us, so let's dive right in. My name is Simone Ruiz-Fergote. I'm based in the Frankfurt office of MSCI, and I follow anything related to ESG policy and engagement with major stakeholders. And our other guest today. My name is Silva Vanson. I recently joined MSCI uh, after a long career at the AXA Group, and I'm in charge of uh, climate investment research as an executive director. So this was my eighth COP. And I think from a corporate perspective, um, what was new is sort of the sense of urgency. We might have seen it in Paris to a certain extent, but this this time you really notice that time is running out. And so the final text really recognizes this gap and it requires countries to upscale their ambition for emission reductions already next year. Normally it would have been five years from now. The text also says that greenhouse gas emissions need to fall by 45% compared to 2010 levels by 2030. And right now we are on track to increasing emissions by 13% over that period. So we have a real gap to close here. And we also know that the 1.5 degrees um, limit allows us only five years for action. So it's a very short timeframe we're having here. After after that, we would enter what we call a delayed action scenario. I think probably a major headline that all corporates should look at closer is that the 1.5 target, so maintaining a 1.5 degrees global warming um, target maximum um, in, in inside was maintained in the final negotiation text. And that means that some very serious policies will be implemented over the next couple of years to allow countries to contribute to this target and actually in the end ultimately achieve it. That would also create societal resistance, but more from a corporate perspective, again, the governments made it quite clear there is no space for coal in a net zero world with this face down formulation and a net zero world would really ask a full scale overhaul of the energy system as we know it today. Sylvain concurred wholeheartedly that one of the main outcomes of COP26 is that the the global commitment to contain global warming under 1.5 degree by 2100 has been maintained. It's looking more and more challenging, of course, but nonetheless, the final Glasgow Pact does refer to that target. Sylvain also found hope in the, the newfound urgency around biodiversity. That's a subject that he feels has not really gotten its due. And he may have a point, as a point of reference, the biodiversity cops, well, they're only up to number 15. Of course, um, 
the opinions on the outcomes of uh, COP26 uh, are mixed. Uh, for sure, it didn't satisfy everybody, but I, it's clear that it wasn't a failure either. Many interesting things happened. Um, I think, for example, the uh, very important narrative space given to uh, biodiversity, nature-based solutions, the loss of um, nature-related services, this was an important piece of the conversation, and that is, is really new. I would have expected this to happen at COP15 in Kunming in China, which is a parallel COP dedicated to biodiversity. But actually, biodiversity was all over the place in Glasgow. That's really interesting. I asked Silvan why he thought biodiversity was getting more attention this year. Why this newfound sense of urgency? I think it's due to the relatively sudden realization by corporates, investors and countries and heads of states that the biodiversity crisis is already on us. It's happening. It's fast. It runs deep. It is worrying because it is at the end of the day, of the day about sustaining life on Earth, but also about, you know, obviously food production, pharmaceuticals. It's pretty significant. And while scientists have been warning about that, the erosion of biodiversity for many years, actually, it's only since I would say 2018, 2019, maybe that this has started to become an investment community related conversation. That That is important because, of course, this is where financial flows can happen. We've had, for example, at the beginning of COP, a commitment to halt deforestation, 100 countries covering, I think, around 85% of forests that committed to end deforestation by 2030. We've had good commitments on public funding. Like all matters climate-related, the trick is getting from commitments to action. And doing so takes guidelines, measurement, and a task force with an acronym. We now have the the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, the TNFD. Um, I think especially listeners to this program are getting somewhat familiar with the initials TCFD. But can you talk a little bit about the TNFD and through the lens of why should companies, corporates, why should they pay particular attention to this task force? Absolutely. So I'm quite close to the TNFT project. In my previous role, I, I have been part of the teams pushing for the creation of the TNFT and very much involved with the creation, the actual creation of the TNFT, so the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. It was launched last summer with a, a great team of leaders, a fantastic secretariat, good partners in this organization. And of course, as the name would imply, the, um, the idea is to emulate the success of the TCFT. Uh, but however, there's, there's differences between the two projects. Um, for starters, the TNFT doesn't have a mandate from the FSB, so it has to operate on a looser mandate given to it by the market generally, but also by the G7 um, in Q2 this year. The FSB is the Financial Stability Board. It's a recognized international body that works to promote global financial stability. And the other interesting thing is that from the outset, the TNFT has agreed to work on something called the dual materiality, which is, by this they mean to look to work both on the impacts and the risks related to biodiversity, i.e. how are investors impacting biodiversity in the way they allocate assets, for example, and how is biodiversity loss going to impact their portfolios? That's something new. The TCFD, strictly speaking, is 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 more is much more about about risks than impacts. Yeah. 
Anything else up here? That actually is a good place to stop because we should stick with this idea of different types of materiality. It's important for companies and for sure for their investors. So let's take a moment and get our terms straight. Financial materiality is when it anything that affects company value, full stop. And the double materiality goes is broader. It looks also at how a company affects anything uh, in terms of society or environment. So it's, it's basically the company's impact on the world. And when we're talking about biodiversity and the TNFD... It's the impact of investment policies, of investments on nature, and the impact of biodiversity loss on those portfolios. So this, this dual materiality mindset is, is here from, from the outset in the TNFD project. Now, it's interesting also because the TNFD has announced it will come up with guidance, first draft guidance um, for corporates uh, to report on their um, impacts and risks related to nature loss by early 2022. I think it would be interesting for all corporates, especially in some sensitive sectors such as, you know, mining, building materials, pharma, agriculture, food products, to look into these um, these draft guidelines and, and try and improve them because once those guidelines become final, if the success of the TCFT is to be replicated, then they will become market practice. Sometimes even they will become, they will be integrated into to uh, local regulation. So we will be stuck with it. So we might as well have a good reporting framework from the outset. So essentially, we're talking about getting your voice heard as we come up with how the structure will be for reporting, standardization, in other words, which obviously is a big topic even on the, the carbon side. But when it comes to biodiversity, I've heard it said that while a ton of carbon is a ton of carbon, a tree is not a tree. Well, that is definitely true. Um, a tree is not always a tree. And the way you measure, for example, its um, its ability to capture carbon or its ability to uh, harbor a biodiverse life uh, is quite different. Uh, people have to look into water eutrophization, land use, land occupation, um, water pollution, air pollution, the deforestation drivers for deforestation, etc. So we don't yet have a fully material set of KPIs to monitor risks and pressures on biodiversity. Um, however, there are some areas where you can start working on. For example, are my is my business, are my investments um, uh, contributing to deforestation? And here it's quite clear what are the main drivers of deforestation. It's it's industries like beef, timber, palm oil, soy, uh, that are the main drivers of deforestation. And it's occurring in, in, a, in a handful of countries. So you can start by looking at your exposure to those sectors and those countries, and you, you start to have a good sense of at least, you know, whether or not you're contributing to deforestation. Deforestation, of course, is a key concern, both from a climate perspective and biodiversity perspective. If you want to have a more uh, thorough, comprehensive perspective on the issue, then this is where the TNFD guidelines come into place because it will look at every sector out there um, and it will produce guidance for corporates to report on more sophisticated drivers that then companies such as MSCI, for example, can handle and turn into um, uh, metrics that will be helpful for monitoring or strategic asset allocation and, and, and so on. 
Besides biodiversity, finance also had its moment in the sun at COP, or was grilled under harsh light, depending on your point of view. The main questions were around, of course, the $130 trillion commitment toward net zero efforts. The resulting announcements received a less than enthusiastic response from many, so I asked Simone what was behind that. I think because the number just seems to be so big and um, you, you don't see necessarily the financial market yet steering clear of fossil fuel assets, for instance. And there seems to be a contradiction, but these $130 trillion come from the number of actors that have um, put their head in the basket. And really, they're having basically said, we will contribute to this. We want to contribute to achieving net zero. Um, and in the end, that's a commitment that is uh, far-stretched. That comes the second point of critique because it's a net zero by 2050. Um, but by committing to this Glasgow um, Net Zero Financial Alliance, the GFANS, these institutions, they have actually said, we will set short-term targets, so they will need to do something fairly soon. They also have said we will report every year on our targets. And they also have said that they will be ready to having these targets reviewed. And I think all of that will lead to some transparency around the net zero strategy that stands behind these $130 trillion. I think the major message is that there is the hell of a lot of capital that has been put up for a net zero transition with significant commitments. Um, in, when you look at the details of this also called race to zero starting line criteria, there is a pledge, there is a plan, there is going to be publication. The scope is defined. It includes scope three. That's very relevant for the financial sector. And like other industries, this has an impact not just on the investment companies themselves, but all of their vendors and their customers. So this this could have quite a ripple effect, no? Yes, there is a whole ecosystem to that. And I think this is this is really relevant. So if the asset owner um, goes out there and tells his asset manager, even if that asset manager has not signed out to that, up to that alliance, that will have that direct ripple on effects. That also has ripple on effects for the data um, providers like MSCI that have to deliver um, certain um, quick um, deliverables in the sense that they need to make sure that their clients can actually commit, uh, sorry, deliver on these commitments. And now over 90 of the founding uh, members have already delivered such short-term targets um, and they have committed to reducing portfolio emission by 25 to 30%. And what is interesting maybe is that there are so many different approaches to how to get to net zero and that will, I think these alliances will play a role in um, finding a, a method that allows um, for the best approach and then sort of a best practice um, approach that will then also lead to a better comparability of these different commitments. Because right now you see that there are so many different ones that it makes it sometimes hard to assess real progress or real success. I think um, those net zero commitments under GFANS are hugely important. GFANS? is the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, the top dog of investment industry alliances Simone was referring to. And they're not some kind of remote commitment by a bunch of investors, banks, and asset managers, and asset owners, and insurers for that, um, that, that will only impact the way they do business. I think it's pretty clear that within a pretty short time frame, those commitments by you know, the investment community will bite into the way they do business. 
for example, I've worked a lot on the Net Zero Insurance Alliance. At the end of the day, once it is fully launched um, through a, a quantitative set of targets for its members, this will this will change quite significantly the underwriting terms um, in the um, commercial lines insurance industry. This means that if you're a carbon intensive client, the terms of an underwriting will will be different than if you are, you know, maybe a, a more a climate solutions provider. Or if you've committed to net zero and you and you can you can show how it's done. This is the same for banks. They will start to rebalance their portfolios. It's already happening for asset owners. When the asset owner alliance, which was I believe the first net zero alliance, was launched, shortly after its launch, a few months later, it launched um, it created the um, its own target setting protocol that comes with so-called intermediate targets, which means that all of the AOA members now have an intermediate target to reduce the carbon intensity of their portfolios, usually corporate debt, um, you know, corporate fixed income, uh, equities and real estate. Sometimes it, it goes a bit larger than that. And this means that already today, I know for a fact that those asset owners are, have already started to rebalance their portfolios. So when I mean, when I say it's going to bite into the way business is being done, it's it's already the case. It will change the shape of financial services um, for many years to come. The Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance has been uh, one of the first initiatives to set themselves a, a target setting protocol and they also look at this new initiative to see how that can be aligned and I think interesting here is that they have committed to really a 25% reduction for financial portfolios until 2025 that's in less than four years, but three years from now. So that's a very near-term target and quite an ambitious one, more ambitious than most governments have committed to. And all of these initiatives also put a lot of emphasis on engaging with the companies in their portfolios. And what you can see is that there is this understanding that reducing financed emissions should not occur at the expense of the real economy. In the end, you need to finance this transition and the money needs to come from somewhere. And um, that's why this, this engaging with the companies in, in your um, financial um, portfolio is really important. And I, I've seen that it's difficult. I've seen uh, that uh, firsthand when I worked uh, for for an asset owner, um, and I I've seen that it's um, but that I've also seen that it's um, oftentimes actually more welcome than you might expect. So some guidance is is welcome, some engagement is welcome, some support from the investment community in implementing this agenda. The corporate side is welcome. There was a study by the University College of Dublin and the universities in Belfast and Edinburgh. Um, and they uh, analyzed the 46 members of the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance, and they could show that only 13 out of these 46 did vote directly on climate-related shareholder proposals. Um, also, there were inconsistencies in voting on more ambitious resolutions that called for corporate action to align with the Paris Agreement as the uh, Shell uh, was actually having this year. Um, and so the study closes by recommending that there is more alignment with the Paris Agreement goals um, in the proxy voting of these asset owners. So I think there is room for improvement, but it it's, stays to, to be said that these um, net zero initiatives all push and um, call for this engagement, which I think can really make a, a larger difference. And yet, Simone continues. The financial sector is a few years behind the corporate sector 
when it comes to sort of the emission inventories and, and target setting practices. Nevertheless, I think you, you can see that there is a real appetite in the financial sector to commit to these net zero targets. And um, maybe the commitments don't always understand or fully understand what's what's really in, involved in these uh, target setting commitments. So there's actually quite a gap um, between what's currently practiced and what's required when you enter such a such a um, commitment or alliance. And that's where uh, institutions like the science-based targets initiative come in that offer to develop a methodology to measure progress on such efforts based on scientific science-based emission reduction targets. So you set yourself a certain target and you make sure the target is in line with the latest science on climate change. The Science-Based Targets Initiative is a partnership between a number of nonprofit organizations from the CDP Disclosure Insight Action to the World Wildlife Fund, as well as the UN's Global Compact. So a pretty impressive pedigree. But what were the actual recommendations? So they they don't have yet a, a fine, finite framework out there, but they are sort of consulting the market on the way forward. And um, they look at it, um, they, they basically, they offer three different approaches. For instance, you can look at how your portfolio aligns with a net zero transition. You can also measure directly the emissions contained in your assets. So more on a, on an asset level basis. But the ultimate aim should be to, to allow um, investors to measure their financial footprint on the on the emissions basis and then to decarbonize over time. Um, and I think here what you can see is that um, they, they provide answers to questions like how should fossil fuels be addressed within such a target formulation? Then there is also a role for the more green assets, the climate solutions, what what should that, um, how should that be approached or how should carbon credits come into the picture? And they're actually quite conservative here, um, only allowing for carbon credits when you're, um, you have already reached a net zero objective. Um, and then how should the near term target framework be updated? Um, and then the next thing is, of course, you also need to understand how your uh, financed emissions get measured. And for that, uh, now corporate in uh, corporate uh, looks at the greenhouse gas protocol, but such thing, uh, the greenhouse gas protocol has not um, handled the financed emission question. And for that, there is an industry um, build initiative, the Portfolio Carbon Accounting Framework, PCAF, that does some very important groundwork looking at how um, different asset classes can be treated for, for measuring financed emissions. So you have these two initiatives, basically a bottom-up and a top-down one, the bottom-up telling you how to measure financed emissions, that's the PCAF, and then the, the bottom, uh, the top-down one is the SPTI that helps you answering questions more related to the target set. Both have consultations out there right now that um, might be worthwhile looking at because they will probably steer the way um, investors will handle these questions in the future. You may have heard Simone mention there the science-based target initiative's view on carbon credits. The carbon markets, putting a price on carbon, along with the idea of carbon offsets, this was part of the Paris Agreement in 2015. Specifically, the carbon market rule under Article 6 of the Paris Agreement, for those of you keeping score at home, Article 6 was adopted in Glasgow this year. After the carbon market had been pretty much dormant for 10 years, 
the effects of this article's adoption were felt very fast. Um, just after the COP closed, the EU emissions trading scheme um, had its price uh, going through the roof. So there was clearly an understanding in the carbon market that now we have new rules and that they mean tightening, which means we will see a more credible system emerge. So um, in a sense, governance, uh, governments can now um, link carbon markets in different countries, but also the private sector has a better access to carbon credits. And as a result of that, the cost of reducing emissions should go down. And that allows then for deeper emission cuts. So you basically allow for higher ambition in the implementation phase. And these cost savings can, of course, also be used to accelerate any transition measures um, and uh, pay for some of the costs in the developing world. So I think here we, we see some real progress, um, maybe not as um, glossy and as front page um, as other announcements, but that can actually make a real difference in the implementation phase. You mentioned how, how it brings the, the, the price down in terms of reducing emissions. Does that, does that immediately affect individual companies and how they can go about reducing their, their footprint? Well, it does. So, for instance, if a company is covered by a mandatory cap and trade, like in the EU, most of the energy intensive companies, then you can use these offsets to reduce your own costs of reducing emissions because you have to reduce a bit less. You use an offset from another country that maybe say 200 tons. That means you have to do less by 200 tons less. Um, and that reduces your costs depending on the price differential between the carbon you buy from abroad and the cost of your own emission um, scheme. So I think that's that's something, but also on the voluntary side, this is something that's an additional cost. So if a company buys voluntary offsets to reduce its own emissions, like many of the financial sector industry participants do these days, then this is just an extra cost. And they do it because they feel like it's a good corporate policy to do it. So they support a mitigation policy somewhere else. So if you're part of a regulated market, it does reduce your cost to be able to, to use offsets. Um, if you're not, then it's just an additional cost that you do for corporate responsibility purposes. And in the midst of all this, where, where does the idea of a carbon border adjustment fit in? It's an additional complication. <laughs> um, it's it's <laughs> it's an interesting proposition because it was in the it sort of it was around for a very long time, and I never thought it would really make it. Um, first, because of WTO concerns and compliance, but also because it's quite complicated as trade is complicated. You have exports of one good that comes back as another good and that is needed again for export. And all these processes, how can you possibly put a price on top at the border that looks after the that is based on the carbon content of the product because that's what it is about. Now the EU has done now, I think it's now 14 years of cap, cap and trade. So there is a certain price that industries pay that others that are based outside the EU don't pay. So there is a competitive disadvantage of being in the EU and producing out of the EU. Now the idea here is to equalize this price of carbon between the domestic products and imports. And so the EU wants to make sure that their production is not relocating because that is carbon leakage. What's the point? You regulate an industry here, it goes abroad, it may emit even more. And so they have introduced this idea of a carbon border adjustment. 
that would only apply as of 2026 in its current form and only for five industries, among other steel and aluminium. Um, and I think the idea here is, or interesting maybe to, to know is that already in 2023, importers may have to report the emissions that are embedded in their goods. So without any financial adjustment, but still this reporting that is currently not and push the bottom and I have my emission report for all my goods in the in the value chain that is not there currently. So the first step is actually reporting and disclosure. And the second step would be to put a price on it. And in its current form, I think they've made very, very we were very careful in formulating it so that it's WTO compliant and might actually really fly. In the end, what can companies take away from COP26? There are the carbon markets, of course, where a lot of the focus will likely be. Bigger picture, though, we have the reaffirmed commitment to limit warning to 1.5 degrees. And there are a number of initiatives like the TNFD for biodiversity or the Science-Based Targets Initiative for Carbon Emissions, both of which are working to set standards for measurement as well as reporting. And as we heard, both are still at the stage where they're looking for input. But in the end, I think Sylvan summed it up well with his message to every company out there. Well, my first thing would be to say, in 2021, if you don't have a climate plan, you don't have a business plan. And by climate plan, I mean something that is aligned with the goals of the Paris Agreement. Why is this? Because the Paris Agreement is about containing global warming to safe levels. If we exceed the goals of the Paris Agreement, then we enter the world of runaway climate change with irreversible damage, and it will be a lot more costly and complicated to fix if it can ever be fixed. So my humble advice to anybody would be, be part of that net zero game, do it seriously, be ready, um, be ready to make a pretty significant effort to do it seriously. But once you've done it, and once you've embarked into that journey, there's no turning back because you'll never regret having contributed to reducing carbon emissions. That's all for this week. Our thanks to Sylvain, Simone, and to all of you for listening. This is actually our last episode of 2021. Yep, Joe and I'll be taking a few weeks off to recharge, spend some time with our families, and, okay, probably do some planning for next year. From everyone at Perspectives, we wish you and yours a very joyous holiday season and a very, very happy new year. Until then, I'm your host, Adam Bass, and this is MSCI Perspectives. Stay safe.